First, though, always a big attraction here in San Francisco is Alcatraz. It just sits out there in the San Francisco Bay, and everybody goes there, except me. I've never been. And today, you went. Yeah, I tried to get you to go, but... Man, I don't think I could hack it. I cannot believe your seasickness is that bad. Dude, it knows no bounds. So have you ever been on, like, a cruise ship? Um, no. How many times have you been on a boat, and did it just happen once, and you said never again, or has this happened? No, no, it happens virtually every time I've been on any vessel of size. And it throwing up and everything? Yeah. Uh, Even when you were a little kid? Yeah, pretty much. Damn. Sometimes when I'm not on vessels of size. I, I wouldn't were, rule it out on a lake. I, I bet you were say, terrible in the Navy. Yeah. I wonder how pl- why planes don't affect you. Typically, people that suffer that on a boat will do the same on a plane. Sometimes they do. Sometimes it does. I've thrown up on planes before. Well, man, you missed an all-timer. Yeah, that's what everybody says. So, Catman is here, and Jeff has been a couple of times. So he is going to uh, sit in with us so I have a sounding board. Three, done time, three times. Three times? All for crimes that I didn't commit. And you, Shut up. And you know what? I would go back again, and I would go back again. Because you don't – you could spend four hours out there mm-hmm. if, you, if you wanted to. But Alcatraz Island is a mile and a quarter right off the coast of San Francisco. Everybody knows about it. I think most people just simply associate it, the word Alcatraz, with prison. And that you don't really know that it's an island that before it was a prison, that um, it was basically a uh, some sort of near, nearly a United States blockade. Because when they were transporting gold up from the Sierra Nevadas, they would come right through that passageway. And it was a way to protect these, these boats that came through there. Well, then it became, they recognized that it could be functional in a certain way. And... They started making it not really a prison, but kind of a, a holding place for criminals and for Civil War deserters and for Southern sympathizers. They would mm-hmm. send them out there to Alcatraz. And again, it wasn't a fully uh, fleshed out prison. It was just this place where they would keep them. And they yeah. knew they couldn't get off. Right. Because you can't swim flat out. You're going to die, you know, especially back then. Many tried. And... Then they had so many people that were ended up being part of that uh, of that system that they had back in the day that they were like, you know what, let's build a prison here. And that's what they did, and the prison opened in 1934. And the who's who of guys that ended up in that prison, it's pretty remarkable. I guess I really never knew that, you know, Machine Gun Kelly was there from the day it opened for 16 or 26 years. Mm-hmm. That's unbelievable. Did he die there? Um, I don't know. Or did he get out and go straight? I don't know. I'm not sure what happened to I him. I mean, Howe's probably one of the most notorious criminals in American history. In uh, Al Capone. In Al Capone, yeah. So Capone was there for a pretty good spell, pretty too. Pretty good spell. And that's kind of where he went insane, too, isn't it? Because of syphilis. Yeah. Syphilis made him literally insane. It's a bitch. Uh... <laughs> So you take the ferry over there. It takes about 15 minutes to get over there. And then you walk out of the ferry, and there's a guy that greets you. It's very strange because 
as you're approaching, and it was really rainy and spooky and cloudy and awful this morning, and it just it kind of reeked of everything that I thought Alcatraz was about. It just had this aura of this is what I want it to be like, and it certainly was cold and awful. And as we approach and get off the boat, there's a guy that greets you at the base of the island itself. And this island goes up, up, up. It's a high mountain. It's the equivalent, they say, of 13 stories high. And you have to go to walk up to the very top to get to the actual prison itself. Yeah. And at the bottom of it, it is, it's strange because it's, it's a garden. It's a sanctuary. It's now a national park. And it's a lot bigger than I anticipated. The island itself? Yes. It's it, funny when you go out to islands like that because they always look... That you think they're going to be small, and you get on them, and they're huge. Yeah. But because it's a mile away, it looks small, but you get out there, and you realize how big that body of water is, too. And the prison itself, you know, you can see it clearly from San Francisco, and it really just looks like that's all there is, is that building that is the prison. And you can see the guard tower from San Francisco, too, because it rises high above the prison, and, like, the lighthouse and the water tower and all that. But it, there's so much more to it than just the prison. And so you get there, and there's a guy that greets the group, and he says... All right, he gives you a little bit of background on on the island itself. And then basically you just go. Like there's no one, it's not like the Bush Museum where you're walking in a line through all these little exhibits and things. It literally is go do what you want to do. Did you do the audio tour? Absolutely I did the the audio tour. I've done the audio tour a couple times and one time, probably my third time, I just wandered around myself. But I think the audio tour is fascinating. It is. Just the way they do it and the sound effects, it really gives you the flavor. It's got to be, as far as interactive museums go, that has got to be the number one attraction in the United States. The way they do this, the way that they guide you through this prison well, system. How do they do it? They give you head, headphones or what? Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> that costs extra, Mike. Wrong, wrong oh. island, Mike. Mike. We are in San Francisco. Anything goes. Yeah, that's, that's true. <laughs> but I think this particular one is they give you headphones. <laughs> <laughs> I th- I, maybe I missed out on that other side. It could be. So yeah, they what I did yeah, first. There's some options on here that you have to ask about. Yeah, they have Off a menu. they have a little theater in there, and you can go in there if you want to and watch a little 15 minute movie on the island, the prison, everything. And it is very fast paced. It takes you through everything, and I did that first because mm-hmm. I've I've seen all the History Channel stuff and uh, Discovery Channel on on it, but it, it's nice to get a friendly reminder right before you walk in there. Yeah. So I saw that little 15-minute video, and then I walked straight to the prison, up this winding switchback. Um, and matter of fact, man, it's tough enough to where if you have any sort of ailment, they have a tram that goes up there because it's not easy to get up there. So once you get up there, uh, they ask what language you speak, you tell them what language you speak, and then they hand you a headset. And they point you in a direction. You're in the prison, all right? You're in. And you walk through there, and uh, the first thing you see are the showers. Now, this is a small prison, too. It's very small. I mean, that was the other thing that shocked me more than anything. This is a prison that housed 300 inmates. Typically, around 250 were there at any given time. That's it. That is tiny. It's not the big house. It was the worst of the worst, though. And it was federal prison. That's why Al Capone was there. It was not. It's not a California state penitentiary. It right. was a federal prison like Leavenworth or one of these other big federal pens. So the first thing you see are these showers. And they have signs that guide you through it. And these guys, they showered twice a week. That's it. And um, I, you can only imagine how bad those dudes must stink. 
and it's this open shower. It is the creepiest looking thing. It's so eerie, like um, uh, concentration camp looking, you know, and everything's dilapidated because you have to imagine this is nearly 100 years now of sea air pounding it, which just cripples these buildings of wind and rain and everything else, and they've done nothing for the upkeep. And so as you're walking through, you first notice that, and then you get to the point where you hit play on your little audio player. And there's a big red sign once you get to the actual jail part itself, when you walk through the laundry place and the shower place, and then you get to the jail and you hit play. And they immediately hear a voice talking, and it's someone that used to work there. They have three former officers that worked the prison and three former inmates that worked the prison that are all the voices that you hear. And clearly you can separate all of them. Right. And they identify themselves over and over and everything, and you get a good feel for who they are. You see their pictures, all of them, and then you start walking through. And the first thing that sticks out is the size of the rooms. And dude, uh uh-uh. I just couldn't do it. You go insane. I mean, I don't, I don't get it. I know prisons aren't supposed to be these kick-ass. Uh, uh, it's not a four-star luxury hotel. No, no it's not. But man, well, like how? They're like what eight, do they look like? I, they're eight feet rectangles, right? They're eight foot. I think it's smaller than that. I thought it was seven. Seven but, foot. Okay, so yeah, basically seven feet. I mean, if you got a guy that's six foot in there, his feet are almost when you when he's sleeping in the bed in the bunk, his feet are almost touching the bars. This is what you deal with. Every day of your life, that is the room that you live in right there, Michael. And I put that out on Twitter, too, earlier, um, where the bed itself, the bed, the room is so small that the beds in Alcatraz nearly touch the toilets. And the only thing that's in those rooms are a single cot bed, a toilet, a sink that only has cold water, and then I don't even know what you would call this thing next to the bed. It's like a makeshift shelf yeah. of some sort and you barely some little thing to keep stuff on dude it is so small that you don't even have room to walk in there and that is where you live outside of getting out into the yard mm-hmm. twice on the weekends that is it and to shower twice and to shower twice Meals. yeah you're that's that's your life right there and so the audio tour starts taking you through and it's showing you the rooms themselves what you had to deal with uh, there's a gin pop area, just like in every prison. Mm-hmm. And then on the back side of the actual jails themselves, there are sol- the solitary confinement rooms. Now, for whatever reason, there aren't very many solitary confinement rooms, but they were bigger. But the thing is about solitary confinement... It's dark, isn't it? No, 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 it's not dark, but you don't... It, well, it's darker than the other rooms are. You get zero sunlight whatsoever, but you never leave. Meals are in there. You never leave there. You don't get then, one hour? I thought you had to have one hour out. Uh, maybe, maybe, I don't know. Today you did. Yeah, yeah, I don't know about it in, the, in the 30s yeah, and 40s right. and 50s, whether or not you did. But And then they have, of course, the hole, which is what everybody stereotypically in your head, you envision that they have at these prisons, where if you've done something really bad, you get locked into a room that is just like the room that I put out there on Twitter that you saw, Mike, except it's pitch black. Wow. For, they'll keep you in there for a month. In the hole? In the hole. 30 yes. days. 30 days in the hole. It's Yes. That's what they give you. And they have you. And so these 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 cells are open. And as you're walking, you know they're, they're guiding you through these on the audio tour, you get to walk in there. 
And man, it gives me so much willies to walk into those places and realize that is where these people were. That is where they spent decades of their lives, right there in these tiny rooms. You go in there, they, they have you walk into the hole, and in your ear you hear this one guy go, he goes, the only way that I uh, kept from going completely insane was I found a button on either whatever coat he had or on the bunk itself, a little bed button, you know, and he would pop it off, and then he would stand in the middle of the room, what he thought was the middle of the room, and he would flip it up in the air. It would hit the ground and bounce around, and his mental activity would be getting on his hands and knees, finding the button. And he says he did it all day just to keep himself sane. Another guy said that, he goes, if I close my eyes, I could, he goes, I, he goes, I know I was going insane because I was creating my own television shows and movies where in my head, uh, this is what you saw. And you had to think really hard about it, but it was the only way he said that, you know, he could have a, a, a sane existence. Dude, it is, it's not human what they put these people through where they had to live. And then on the flip side of it is once you did get out in the yard or once you did, if there was any view whatsoever of uh, outside, there's never been a prison like this where the tease was San Francisco. There you see this city, this majestic, sprawling city that's a mile and a quarter away, and you can't... Yeah. That was one of the things that stuck with me over these years and, and going out there so many times is what you just said, and it's, they say this in the audio tours, part of the mental game that these guys had to overcome was not that you could see the city, but they would be in their cells, and at night, because it's so windy around town, and if the wind was blowing right, and there was people in San Francisco, and this is, you know, in the heyday of town or whatever, they could hear people's voices and glasses clinking and the sound of, like, people partying. Of life. Of life coming across the bay into their cells, knowing that it was just right out there and they could never get there. They said that they could hear on New Year's Eve especially because the yeah. city was so vibrant that um, like down there in uh, in Sausalito, because it's pretty close to Sausalito, you could hear like the Yacht Club having their big New Year's Eve party and they could hear women's voices and they said it just made them insane. It was it was it was a, a mind game. It was a piece of reality that they couldn't get to, and it just absolutely killed them. So half the tour was about the prison itself, what they had to do, the um, the military style um, techniques that the guards employed, as far as everybody being in step and and uh, never missing a beat. The the back half of it though was about the escapes. And there were 14 attempted escapes. None of them worked, as far as we know, because we still don't know the end result of, of the escape in 19 or the attempt in 1962 that was turned into the movie, the Clint Eastwood movie. But they start going through these, and the one that is not on the audio tour that one of the the guides told me is the one that I swear should have been a movie itself. There was a guy that all by himself. They said this was the smartest man to ever go through Alcatraz. That. He was so he was such a model prisoner that he started working on the docks. And the dock, every day, there's no water there. You have to bring in water from San Francisco. There's no well there. Yeah. They're having to bring in water from San Francisco. They have to bring in all the laundry from San Francisco. And so this guy, um, he figured that as the laundry would, was coming through, that he was dealing with prison guard laundry as well. And he was like, man, if I can get a hold of a 
a prison uniform, I could probably sneak off one of these boats on the way out. It took this guy... A prison guard uniform? Yeah, 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 prison guard uniform. It took this guy 10 years to accumulate from head to toe the exact uniform of an officer. And he did it. And he found a way to change in the middle of the day to where no one saw him. He got the uniform on, completely squared away. He got on a boat, a leaving boat, and off he goes. And nobody recognized him? Nobody there recognized him? No, no, because, no. He gets on the boat, and he's going to San Francisco. He's like, oh, my God, I'm going to make it. He got on the wrong boat. Where did he go? The boat went to freaking Angel Island. He went from Alcatraz to Angel Island. (laughs) Which is just right around the corner. Yes. And then that's where the people are like, wait a minute. What are you doing? Who are you? He got on the 10 years of planning, and he got on the wrong boat. Yeah. Dude. Yeah. It's it's ridiculous. You know what? Let's take a break. I want to come back because I want to tell you about, because they actually have the, the, the heads of the dummies that were used in the final 1962 escape. You see those. You see the way these men completely escaped from Alcatraz, and it is amazing. All right. From out here at the Media Center at the Super Bowl, it is us, your little buddies, your little sports buddies here on the little ticket, the one and only. And we're listening to Tales of Alcatraz. Man, this is just making me crazy. You would I, love it. And, I, I got to get over. And like I'm somehow. a, you know, I'm a monster history nut, and so all every second of it to me was just fascinating. And and um, you know, as much as we, as fascinating as prison talk is in general, because we don't know about it. I mean, this is this is it. This is the mecca of them all. Yes. You know, it's the big one. Yeah, it really is. And so going through there, on the back half and learning about the escape attempts. Oh my God. You talk about mesmerized, and the big one, of course, was the one in 1962. The one that involved Frank Morris and the two brothers, whose cells were all right next to each other. And Frank Morris, if you don't know the story, uh, back in 1961 had discovered that right there, and again, I tweeted the photo out of what the actual rooms look like, and when you look down below the sink, there is a vent, a vent area. And he noticed that because of years of salt, water, and erosion, and wind, and all that, that it it started to take its toll on that prison. And he chipped a little piece off right next to his vent on accident. Like it just kind of came off, a big clump came out. And he was like, huh. And over the course of a massive period of time, he and uh, the two brothers not only dug their way out of their room, which was pretty easy... It was only like, a, I don't know, a foot and a half or whatever of, of that stuff that they had to get through. But they had to make a fake vent, which, again, that to me is, that to me was, because was, you had to sell it. It had to look real, because those guards walked past your cells every single day, right. night and day. So you had to make this vent look real. They figured out a way to shimmy up the piping uh, in between two sides of, of the of the. Uh, of the of the actual cells and onto the roof they popped the top on the roof of these pipes and then had to get up on top of the roof and then scale down get over a fence all this while the guard tower the guards are watching and all that so they did it in the middle of the night the main thing is though 
They had to have the time to do it. They had to have the tools to do it, which turned out to be spoons, things yeah. that they stole from the commissary. Yeah, it's kind of like the guys in New York. Yeah, it was. Yeah. Um, and then uh, in the end, it was just a matter of when they wanted to pull this off. And they had to study the tides because that's the big it's not just getting out of there. It's the swimming part. And I know yeah. a lot of people have, have sent in notes like, you know, they, they do triathlons now out there. Yeah, they do. But this is in the early 60s, and there weren't a lot of triathletes out there, I hate to tell you, especially ones in prison. So, yes, it's doable, but it's doable by people, by the .0001 percenters out there as far as being in that type of, of shape. So they got to get that thing fixed, the vent fixed, and then they've got to figure out when they're gone because they have to have the biggest head start ever of guards noticing that their beds are not empty. And they made dummy heads, and they made it out of uh, cement. They made it out of glue. They made it out of rubber. They got hair from the barber shop that they would collect when they went in there and get their own haircuts. And the dummy heads, and I'll, I'll tweet a picture of the dummy heads. I don't know if they use the actual dummy heads in the movie, the Clint Eastwood movie, but they are still there. The exact setup of how those rooms appeared when the guards figured out that they weren't there, that's how it looks today. And in the audio tours, the guards say they're banging on the on the, uh, on the the bars telling Frank Morris and the two brothers to get up. First it was Frank Morris, like, get up, Morris. Get up, Morris. Morris, don't make me come in there. And then they crack open the door, and they, they grab the head. And the head comes off, and the, the guard says he flipped out. He was like, oh, Jesus. And uh, and then the thing is, is they weren't prepared. For, even though there had been many uh, escape attempts, they weren't fully prepared. And so the Alcatraz, the Alcatraz uh, warden at the time, he was actually gone on a fishing trip. And they had these plans, and this made no sense to me. They had protocol for when there was an escape. And the protocol was locked away in a safe. You remember hearing about this? Mm-hmm. And so... They had to go, they had to get the associate warden to go open up the safe. All the guards gathered in this one room, and then it had this laundry list of where these guards needed to be once there was a breakout and what they had to do. Well, meanwhile, this took an inordinate amount of time, and they knew exactly what had happened. I mean, that island's big, relatively, you know, where you could hide out for a little bit, but they knew they are in the water. Right. They knew damn well they were in the water. And so the head start, the time that these guys got, to escape was invaluable. They did it. Lights go out at 9:30, and uh, as they say, once you know on your audio tour, when they tell you lights are out, lights are out, and there ain't a lot of noise. You know, not a lot of people are yipping and yapping back and forth. You're just trying to get to sleep as best you can. Well, so at probably at 10 o'clock is when they started the process of taking their fake vent out, shimming up the pole, the pipes, and you can see all of this. You can see the piping that they crawled up. There's like a door, a utility door that you can look through there and be like, oh, my God, how did they do that? And um, and then, you know, you can, they don't. You, you this can't, is like a pipe that they just grabbed onto and yeah, climbed up? Yeah. Now, there are bolts out on the pipes themselves, so you have footing. Yeah. You know, yeah. it wasn't too incredibly difficult to get up this these pipes. Unless you could probably push your back against the cell block wall that's behind you and kind of shimmy up it yeah. too. But, it, but the thing was, is you couldn't be too big, because if you were too big, you had a chance of getting stuck. I and mean, these guys were the right size for the space, too. They were. They were both, they weren't like, uh, they were they were lean. Lean, right. Yeah, they weren't like fat guys or anything. But, uh, yeah, so they had that, that head start, and, yeah, they never found them. Never found these guys, and that's the... That's the Troika that everybody wonders. And, you know, there have been pictures that have been surfaced 
uh, in South America. And, and I never knew this, but the, the in, in the audio tour, the prisoners that they talked to said that they were going to South America mm-hmm. because they were all learning Spanish. All of them were. And you had ample time. I mean, you, you go into the prison library, which was kind of the home away from home for a lot of people because it's all you had is books. Yeah. People, if you could read, it was a highly illiterate prison, mm-hmm. but if you could read, you were reading 100 books a year. The other thing that they did, and you didn't mention this part, was they also had to steal other provisions because they had to make the masks, they had to make the fake grill, and they also made fake, or not fake, but they made rudimentary life vests or rafts to yep. try and help them float out there and swim out there. How did we because they stole the raincoats and things like yeah. that from the uh, from the laundry and like kind of stitched them together best they can. They say it probably wouldn't work, but if you can at least hold on to something to help you get out to a certain point, whether that's Angel Island was one theory they went there and then had help, yeah. or they made it to one side or the other and, and got out, that would have helped them too. And so they had that in, stuffed in their in their uh, cell some way and hidden away and had to take that with them too. I still can't figure out how they got heads in there. Mm-hmm. I, and, and you had to walk through metal detectors too. It, by the by, the late fifties and sixties, they had, had installed metal detectors. So when you're leaving the uh, the commissary area, they check you because they had forks and knives. I don't know why they didn't have plastics back then. Maybe back, they didn't back didn't the exist. Day. But yeah. they used real forks and knives and spoons and stuff. And they had to get those things out of there through a metal detector somehow. And it was, I mean, the planning that went on with this. You know, we talk about what happened up in New York. This this blows it away by. Because they had they had access to things, yeah. they, they had access to people on the outside. You didn't have that in Alcatraz. You have anything like that? Yeah, I mean, clearly Rick Matt took this from the Alcatraz playbook, from the Frank Morris playbook. No doubt. So when we got there, and I'm not sure if the, if this guy was there, Cat, when you were there, but we got there, and the, there was a man that immediately spoke to us about the prison itself, and they go, "I want to introduce you to Bill Baker," mm-hmm. and this little old man was there, and he's wearing a stocking cap that says Raiders, and he looked to be about 85, 90 years old. And the guy who was the head of the uh, of the tour, he goes, Bill, why don't you get on up here? And Bill stands up on this box, and he was like, uh, I'm, I'm prisoner 1259. He was a freaking Alcatraz prisoner. He is one of the last remaining Alcatraz prisoners that are alive. And he sat there and spoke to us. And then, cool. and then he had written a book, and that's why he's there. He's hawking his book. And I went and bought the book, and he said, he goes, once you guys finish your tour, come talk to me. And boy, if I didn't deliver the ass-whipping of a lifetime, I wanted to record it, but I felt weird about it, you know? Shut up. You, you felt you weird about loved recording it. somebody? I know, I know, I know. Um, but we all went up there, a bunch of people went up there and talked to him, and fascinating. And I bought the book, and he signed the book, and... Uh, yeah, I mean, in matter of fact, this guy, he was in there during that time. He got out in 1960 or 61, I think. So he was in there. He knew the Morris. He knew Frank Morris. He knew those brothers. He knew all. I mean, I'm like, you're talking to a piece of history, you know? Yeah. It was so incredible. I was getting you know, almost like emotional talking to this guy. Well, where did they close it down? 1962 or 63. I think 62 was a prison escape. 63 is when they closed it down. You know, close it down. RFK did. Bobby Kennedy shut it down because he said this was this was inhumane. inhumane. 
You could not do this to people. So not only was it a small prison, and it was really only open for a relatively short amount of time, I mean, 30 years, more or less. Yeah, that's it. Maybe a little bit more. And so when you only can house that many people there, it's just a relatively small number. That's why that prison has so many notable uh, inmates in there. This guy says, and I asked Michael, what did you, did you learn a skill or a trade or anything? And he was like, yeah, I learned how to forge checks. I go, really? And he goes, yeah, yeah. And this guy's old, really old. And I go, well, then what happened once you got out? He goes, I, I, was in pri- I was in prison for 50 years. Like, he was in prison until, like, 10 years ago for forging checks. And, and he's like, I owned that entire section of, of crime on the West Coast in America as far as forging checks and cashing hot checks. And he's like, I learned it all from a guy in Alcatraz. And he's like, I perfected it here. At the Rock, and and I took that out on the outside, and that was my trade. Yeah, they didn't rehab prisoners back then. Oh, God, no. You weren't getting GEDs or going to the law library to work on your appeal. No, not at all. So when they turned you loose, you were just turned out and left on your own, huh? Yeah, and and it's a lot like Shawshank, where you didn't know what to do. And Mm -hmm. and, in the audio uh, portion of it, they say that, that that when they shut the prison down, they... They have pictures of the last people, the last inmates leaving Alcatraz, and a couple of them spoke and said that they got to San Francisco, and they had been in there for 10 years, and they were like, they, it was so fast, everything was so fast, and this guy was like, I didn't belong. I, I just, I didn't belong there. Yeah. And he belonged there in Alcatraz. Dude, it is incredible going out there. I, I cannot, if you ever make it out here... It's, I don't know, 30 bucks or 40 bucks or something like that. I would have paid, well, I did pay double because I bought your damn ticket, thinking that you might go. So, but I, I it's, Sorry, yeah, buddy. it's so incredibly worth it to go out there. And I'll buy I, your next Wilco ticket, okay? And I met a living inmate. How about that? And the other word to the wise for people that are considering a trip out here to San Francisco is you need to pick the day and the time that you're going to Alcatraz and buy your tickets in advance because it does sell out, especially yeah. in the summer. Yeah, and I bought mine. You know, I did the morning tour. I think I did the first tour that they allowed, and so it wasn't too mm-hmm. bad trying to get it. But, yeah, typically – and they say the night tour is the thing to do. That's the cool – the cool version of it, but I can't imagine it being any cooler than the yeah. one that I went on. I tell you what, I hadn't done the night thing, but I've been out there in the middle of the summer. I've been out there in the fall, all different times of the year. No matter what the weather is like, it is freaking cold that's, out there. That's another thing that you don't you don't really realize. But in the prison itself, those guys were freezing, freezing. Yeah. You know, they have coats, but dude, nothing can protect you from that wind, from that sea wind, and those temperatures out there. It mm. was a bitch living there. As you can imagine, it's Alcatraz. Good it is Alcatraz. Boy, it sounds awesome. I gotta go, man. Yeah, you gotta suck it up. Get drunk, pass out, and wake up on the other side.